Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, today's episode of Nick's Notes. Uh, thank you for listening to this and uh, all these episodes. I hope you find them informative. I certainly enjoy trying to provide information and get a discussion going. Um, today, I wanted to talk about uh, the Medicare direct contracting model, which is now renamed to the ACO REACH model. Um, and we'll talk about what that means and why this is important. But in the normally staid world of Medicare had quite the brouhaha over the last few months as uh, 53 progressive uh, members of the House and Senate uh, wrote to the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, our California's own Xavier Becara, to put the direct contracting model, which went into effect under President Trump, on hold or to eliminate the program. That led to people on the progressive side saying this and direct contracting entities saying that and providers saying this and people saying, oh, well, there was all quite the brouhaha and everything settled down and the program was redefined and clarified a bit, uh, increased transparency, renamed, because, you know, when you put a new name on things in Washington, I guess it's new. Uh, but they did add some important new, uh, I think, uh, governance items. And so what what does it all mean? What was the... What is direct contracting? What was the hubbub about? And what happened now? That's sort of what I want to talk about today. So the first thing is that Medicare's direct contracting model is a part of Medicare's push to move more and more seniors to a value-based care environment, right? And ostensibly, the goal of value-based care is to focus not on the number of interactions a patient has with the doctor, but on outcomes, improving outcomes, preventive care, lowering overall cost of care by improving patient health. And that is an enviable goal, and it gives them the government cost control because the way any uh, value-based care model works typically is there's a capitation payment to the provider. You get X amount of money to take care of Y patient for a year, and within that money, you have to take care of the patient. Now, as soon as you hear that, you're going to think, well, what if the person doesn't take care of the patient well and tries to pocket more of the money? And of course, human nature being what it is, that has been a problem with Medicare Advantage. Many, many Medicare Advantage plans move members to what's called a delegated or uh, environment with a provider group where they take X amount of dollars from Medicare, they give 85 to 90% of that, depending on how sick the patients are, to the provider group, and the provider group has to manage in that amount of money, and everyone has an incentive to spend less money. If you spend less money on patient care because the patient is healthier and doing better, that's the goal. But if you spend less money on patient care because you're just trying to put more money in your pocket, then we haven't moved to a value-based care environment. We're just hosing people out of quality health care or preventive health care or the kinds of health care that can actually help people lead happier, more productive lives. And with Medicare being an entitlement program, but it's really one, remember, that people pay into, it is something that the government's job is to watch over and make sure that the providers and the insurance companies and everyone involved in this process sticks to the spirit. Because your option as a patient is to stay on straight Medicare. And yes, you have more co-pays and some out-of-pocket costs, but you can go see any doctor, anytime, do anything you want, as long as you're willing for any covered service, as long as you're willing to pay your share of the copay. 
Typically, the motivation for patients to move to a Medicare Advantage or value-oriented care environment is that they eliminate or significantly reduce the copays and the caps on out-of-pocket costs in exchange for reducing the amount of freedom they have. They're tied to a set, a smaller subset of providers, a smaller formulary for medications, perhaps different or limited services, but in exchange for cost control. And so it becomes that much more important to think about what are these patients actually getting because you can imagine that more affluent patients on Medicare are more likely to stay on straight Medicare, and in fact they are, because they're less concerned about the copays or deductibles than lower income patients who need to manage the copays and deductibles, and we certainly don't want them to get uh, deficient care in exchange for trying to manage their copays and deductibles. Now, as Senator Elizabeth Warren pointed out in this discussion about the direct contracting model, uh, she, she, her concern was that Medicare would be privatized and turn to corporate profiteers. And Senator Warren correctly pointed out that for a long time, Medicare Advantage plans have worked with providers to add unnecessary diagnosis to inflate risk scores of Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, thus inflating the patient's risk scores and getting a higher payment for Medicare. What that means is, to be clear, instead of actually, let's say you're supposed to get $12,000 to take care of for the patient because they're a certain level of sick. That's called a risk score, a risk adjustment factor. Okay. There are two ways to actually lower their healthcare cost if you're mandated to provide a certain amount of services. Way number one is to actually provide those services exceptionally well, reduce the patient's healthcare, maybe go provide a little bit more than you're supposed to so that the patient actually gets better and costs come down and so on and so forth, right? The other way is to say to the government, well, this patient, you said they were, this rare risk score was 1.2, but it's actually 1.5. They're sicker. So give us 15 grand and you pocket the difference. And that is what Senator Warren is alleging. And to be clear, many Medicare Advantage plans in many states and many across the country have paid fines in the hundreds of millions to billions of dollars because of these exact issues. To be clear, this is a real problem and it does need to be fixed. And when I first about there heard about this brouhaha with direct contracting, my first thought to that was, well, if we're going to fix this, we should probably fix Medicare Advantage first because direct contracting is brand new and there are about 51 entities that are direct contracting entities and I think about 100,000 covered lives in total. Medicare Advantage is 40% of all Medicare patients. I believe it's about 20 million lives right? And this needs to be fixed. And it, one of the big problems is the insurance lobby and who they get elected, Democrats and Republicans. So it is actually very, very hard to fix this problem um, in our current political environment and, and the campaign finance laws being as lax as they are. But that's a story for another day. But I want, do want to say that when Senator Warren says that, she's not socialist, she's not communist, she's not anything. She's absolutely pointing out a hard fact Okay, um, and working in healthcare for the last eight, eight years, we have read about this, experiences, and seen how insurance companies think about this, which is, I'll just go get more money from the government. And keep in mind, when that happens, they're taking more money from your pocket and from my pocket, okay, and to pad the profits of insurance companies and the executives and the shareholders of those companies. Now, 
Within that environment, direct contracting came along, and one of the problems with direct contracting was the lack of transparency. Did the patient know the ostensible goal of direct contracting? Remember, the Affordable Care Act capped the profits on government-funded patients at 15%. So the amount of maximum money that the insurance company could keep on a patient is 15% of the total amount given to them, okay? That was a result of the Affordable Care Act, which is a good step forward. If you go directly to provider groups and say provide value-based care on these patients and the risk score remains the same on those patients, so then technically they could cost 15% less because there's no insurance company in the middle. Medicare is going directly to the provider. Well, what happened is what always happens, which is insurance companies and private equity companies and all of these groups got involved in the ownership of all these DCEs. And when the direct contracting entities were first created, the rules were, which is relatively new, it's, this is the first year of the program, the rule was that uh, the providers, as in doctors that were involved in this, were only required to make up 25% of the government or voting rights for that direct contracting entity, which means they had minority control. The majority control could be in the hands of what Elizabeth Warren called corporate profiteers, Okay. Um, and cert, whatever your view in corporation is, they are profit-motivated entities, and I run a for-profit corporation. There's nothing inherently run wrong with a for-profit entity, but their motivations are different. So one important rule that in the change from direct contracting to ACO reach was a change that the voting uh, uh, and governing rights of providers, doctors, comprise of 75% of that entity, which means the doctors have a governing control over each entity, an overwhelming supermajority, three quarters of each entity, so that doctors are making the decisions that can affect the patients, not independent of physicians are those decisions being made. And I think that is the most significant and important change that happened here, right? The other problem is that there was a transparency issue. Nobody really understood the word direct contracting. And when you, at least the argument is when you buy a Medicare Advantage plan or agree to sign up for a Medicare Advantage plan, you of your own volition are doing it. No one can force you into an MA plan, right? But with direct contracting, you're already seeing a doctor. Your doctor moves you to this plan. Do you know about it? Did you really understand what you were getting into? Did you understand you're losing some of your freedoms as far as other providers you can see, right? So calling it an ACO reach program actually solves some of those problems and it solves the ownership problem. Now, what is the reach piece? We all understand accountable care, which is more a provider controlled and being accountable for the quality of care, but they added in reach. It's an acronym that stands realizing equity, access, and community health. And this is part of Medicare's unprecedented focus on health care quality and health equity right? The understanding that it that we've talked about on this podcast many, many times before that lower income people have a shorter life expectancy because they have unequal access to healthcare. They have dramatically worse access to healthcare. And as a result, the, the, the goal of the government funded programs increasingly so is to increase health equity, right? Um, so uh, Med uh, Center for uh, CMMI Innovation Director Liz Fowler said in a statement under the ACO REACH model, healthcare providers can receive more predictable revenue and use those dollars more flexibly to meet their patients' need and be more resilient in the face of public health challenges like the current pandemic. And, and then 
the but the and she didn't say this, but the goal is that the capitated payment does require the creation of a health equity plan and a health equity benchmark to make sure that some of the patients in the program and that some of the dollars are going to increase health equity to programs for food and nutrition and the kinds of things that help lower income people get the same health care quality that more affluent Americans take for granted. Right. And there's a red data and reporting requirement. So overall, I think this is a rare instance of where lawmakers and industry sort of came to came to a head. There was quite the, you know, quite the discussion, lots of, you know, voices raised and stuff on either side. But I think we came away with a substantial improvement. Right. Um Compliance and coding practices, so there's no inappropriate coding. A nod to concerns. Um, the, the, you know, the goal of that was to reduce the concerns of the progressive lawmakers, so that you couldn't be a profiteer who just raised the risk or build for unnecessary things. Said the patient is just sicker than they are. But overall, this is a very good process forward, I think, because a there is a focus on health equity. B there is more control over the doctors. And these are the kinds of programs, by the way, these ACO models are the kinds of programs that let doctors stay independent, right? We've talked about on this podcast, one of the trends that I think is very dangerous is that a vast majority of doctors in America work for large health insurance companies, right? And that doesn't necessarily align incentives in the patient's best interest. If you work for the entity whose job it is to spend less on your health, on the patient's health care, then you're in, that's, the person who pays your paycheck has a lot of influence influence over how you think about things, right? These kinds of models bypass the insurance company, take government dollars, give them directly to provider-controlled entities with a focus on health equity, with a focus on quality, with an increased uh, emphasis on compliance and coding, with an increased emphasis on quality, transparency, and outcomes. And this can hopefully become a model for the broader reform to Medicare Advantage itself, because if this exists here, then Medicare Advantage should then the CMS should apply this more broadly, require Medicare Advantage plans to reduce the amount of money the insurance companies make and abide by many of these same rules, including the 75% uh, provider control piece, which I think is really important, and the focus on health equity. These are my thoughts. I certainly welcome yours. It will be interesting to see what happens in 2023, 4, and 5 in the years ahead. Hopefully, this becomes a model for actually giving patients better health care that improves outcomes that is more preventative in nature and help start to inch toward closing that gap, the, the huge gaping hole that is health equity in the United States or health inequality in the United States. I thank you for listening. I thank you for participating. As always, you can learn more about me in the links below. I'm Nick Desai, CEO of Hey Renee and previously founder of Heal. Thank you again.